I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, host and editor of Newsbeat, the award-winning podcast that brings you high-level social justice journalism, often mixed with music and original contributions by brilliant independent hip-hop artists. I'm joined for another update episode by Chris Tawarski, our editor-in-chief, Rashed Mian, our managing editor. Greetings to you both. Uh, we're here to give you an updated bit of information that we thought was interesting to share regarding the Israel-Gaza conflict. We've brought you a couple of episodes uh, that have given some insight into that conflict as well. Uh, so if you're just checking this out, go back a couple times either on the YouTube feed or on our audio feed. You can find all of the information and links, etc. at usnewsbeat.com. And also make sure you uh, check out our free Substack newsletter, which contains full posts about these episodes and plus this kind of, I want to say, bonus information that we're trying to bring to your attention. Uh, in this one, we actually have a guest. It's a We'll be talking very little here because we want to give the floor to our guest uh, who gave us an interesting uh, bit of insight about an angle that, you know, uh, as I always say, I hadn't heard that much about. Chris, why don't you start us off, tell our intrepid listeners uh, who we're bringing on and why this was important to do at this point. Yeah, so we spoke with prolific author, filmmaker, journalist, Anthony Lowenstein. Uh, he's the co-founder of investigative news outlet, Declassified Australia. He was actually in Sydney, Australia when we spoke with him. And he just came out with a, his latest book titled The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. And um, he's been a previous guest on two or three of our episodes. Uh, Disaster Capitalism was one of them and Grifter's Paradise. So uh, for listeners, if you want to go back and, and check those out, just an incredible, incredible journalist. He conducted interviews with, with journalists, scholars, attorneys, human rights groups, officials. He pulls from public statements, historical records, declassified documents, and chronicles the ascent of Israel. Uh, to its current standing as one of the top arms dealers in the globe. And mm -hmm. he presents the case that they test many of these weapons that are, are uh, eventually exported to dictatorships and democracies. They test them and, and hone their perfection uh, on the Palestinians. We just felt it, it uh, provides just critical insights that you just don't, you just won't hear anywhere else. Yeah. Secondly, uh, you know, we also want to use this as a way to keep you all abreast of, of what's been taking place in between our previous episodes. So, Rashad, if you want to just talk a little bit about some of the latest things that's on your mind. Yeah, definitely. Lowenstein's awesome. Like you said, we've had, him, uh, we've had him on a couple of times and he just gets straight to the point and he's an incredible investigative journalist. So we're definitely honored to have him on the podcast. Just really quick, one update I want to give before we sh shoot over to that interview is something that you're probably not going to hear about, as usual, um, from our beloved corporate media, uh, is that late on January 31st, a federal court in California issued its decision in a case in which the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, representing various plaintiffs, including Defense for Children International, sued the uh, Obama administration, which, whatever, an extension. Okay, President Trump, <laughs> get it right. Sued the Biden administration, um, Biden, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, um, claiming that they were complicit in genocide against Palestinian people. 
So the decision came down. Basically, the judge dismissed the case, which is what the administration obviously wanted. The case was dismissed on jurisdictional grounds. The argument is something called, sorry, I'm pulling it up here. Uh, we got it. Sort of like a standing, you know, do they have standing in this? That kind yeah, of deal? So the, so the judge basically said that uh, foreign policy decisions belong to the executive branch. So they can't really, so the, the judicial branch cannot really interfere in that. But what was interesting, so he threw out the case on jurisdictional grounds, which is sort of expected. But what was interesting is he really came out forcefully against the administration. He said that there's undisputed evidence before this court that comports with the findings of the ICJ, which we talked about, and indicates that the current treatment of the Palestinians in Gaza Strip by the Israeli military may plausibly constitute a genocide in violation of international law. So he's really, he's coming out saying that he's basically stands with the ICJ decision and agrees with it. He went on to say that it's, it is every individual's obligation to confront the current siege in Gaza, but it also is this court's object, obligation to basically note that they can't go along with this case because of the jurisdictional grounds. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read from the conclusion, which is short. This is what he said, which is incredible. There are rare cases in which the preferred outcome is inaccessible to the court. This is one of those mm-hmm. cases. So he's saying, I wanted to do mm-hmm. something, but right. my hands are tied behind my back. Um, and the thing he wanted to do was basically this is a case against the government, our government, yeah. not their government, our government for being complicit, I guess. Right. Is yeah, exactly. The, what yeah. the CCR and the, and the people they were represented wanted was basically an end to monetary and weapons uh, support to Israel during this war. Yeah. This is what he said. The court implores, def- implores defendants, a.k.a. Biden, to examine the results of their unflagging support of the military siege against the Palestinians in Gaza. I don't remember. I don't I mean, look. I'm not a follower of all court proceedings, but this is basically a forceful, as you said, Chris, in a in a conversation we were having, admonishment of the mm-hmm. Biden administration. Although the judge can't do anything, so that's just another update from this horrific war that you're probably not going to hear about because the ICJ case was downplayed yeah. um, significantly. This case might not even get any airtime, even though a, a federal judge just said it, that it's plausible that Israel, the country we support, is is plausible that they're committing genocide. Yeah. All right, we'll follow up on that. We'll follow up on anything that does actually seem to or try to or, you know, hopefully make a difference in how that unflagging support is being being offered. Uh, in the meantime, unless we have anything else, gentlemen, let's get right into it. Uh, this would be uh, just introduce once once again our guest and uh, we'll get right to it. Here's Anthony Lowenstein. Again, um, he, uh, his new book, uh, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. All right, here it is. Your book does an incredible job of providing critical insights that you just do not hear. So I wanted to first start, if you could just explain the title of your book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. How is Palestine a laboratory and what are the Israelis testing on the people there? So Israel has run and maintained the longest occupation in modern times the occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. I mean, many people would argue the occupation started in 1948, and one can have that argument. But certainly for decades and decades, there has been a brutal occupation where Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens. If you're a Jew, if you live in Israel, or for that matter in the West Bank as a settler, you are treated differently. There's two levels of justice, and that's essentially what's become an apartheid state. So that's been the longest occupation in modern times. Now, to maintain that occupation, Israel has needed, in its own logic, to develop huge amounts of tools and technologies 
to control Palestinians and subjugate them. Now, of course, there are many examples where Palestinians have resisted that, October 7 being the most obvious example, which we can get to later. But for decades and decades, many Palestinians have lived, in fact, most Palestinians have lived under occupation. And the tools and technologies I'm talking about in the modern era, particularly since 2000, 2001, is drones or spyware or facial recognition technology, biometric tools. Israel runs something called Unit 8200, which is the equivalent of the US's NSA, where all communications between and out of Palestine is controlled, monitored, listened to, surveilled, emails, phone calls, etc. So that's the way Israel has tried, in its view, to maintain that occupation. But during those years, what it's also been doing is promoting those tools and technologies as battle-tested in Palestine to huge amounts of nations around the world, democracies and dictatorships. This started really in the 50s before the 1967 war and the occupation of the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem began. So very soon after Israel's birth in 1948, Israel has been promoting itself really as, in its view, running an effective so-called war on terror. This is how you control people, so the argument goes. Let us show you how to do it. And as I document in the book, there are really innumerable numbers of countries. I calculated in the book 125, some have said 140. No one really actually knows the exact number, but it's the majority of countries on the planet in the last half century plus have either bought some form of Israeli weapons, spyware, have taken Israeli training on so-called counterterrorism. And I'm talking about everyone from apartheid South Africa to the genocidal regime in Guatemala to the Iranian regime before the revolution, 1979. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. In the modern era, just briefly, Myanmar, which the UN has said has committed genocide in the last decade. After that finding, Israel was still selling weapons and spyware to the Myanmar regime. Now, that shows you that I mean, the arms trade is inherently amoral. I'm not suggesting that Israel is particularly amoral. And For example, the US arms industry is full of roses. I mean, let's be clear. The arms industry, by definition, is amoral. And the US has about 40 to 50% of the arms trade in the world, the biggest by far. Israel's 10th. But... What Israel has in its backyard, which other countries do not, is a ready-made population who are occupied, Palestinians. So the Palestine Laboratory really is a way to explain and show to people how huge amounts of both Israeli governments over the decades and Israeli companies have used Palestine and the experience of occupation to promote itself as the best way for other nations to repress their own minorities or dissidents or human rights activists or whoever it may be. So in theory, they've basically created an oppression industry. That's The arms industry itself might not be exclusive, obviously, to Israel, but what you're describing sounds like an oppression industry yes. that might, that to me sounds like something that is semi-exclusive to them. It is. And it's worth saying, of course, that the US, for example, after 9-11 went into Iraq and Afghanistan and they battle-tested many weapons in those countries during the war. And in fact, it's worth also saying that although 9-11 was arguably the biggest intelligence failure in US history, that had zero impact on Israeli defense companies. In fact, it had the opposite effect. They've never been more successful, Rayathon, Lockheed Martin and others, because they were able to provide 
so many weapons in Iraq and Afghanistan and beyond. And today, for that matter, in the war in Ukraine or what's happening in Gaza to Israel. But Israel's experience is unique because there's no other country really. Only equivalent would be China uh, potentially occupying parts of, we'll say, Tibet, that many would argue is not actually Chinese territory. And there's no doubt that, as I say in the book, China in many parts of its country is building what is probably inarguably the most sophisticated form of social control in the world. But Israel is not far behind. And, of course, the difference, the fundamental difference is China doesn't claim to be a democracy. It's essentially an authoritarian police state, become far more brutal under President Xi in the last 10 years or so. Israel claims to be a democracy. And, of course, so much of Israel's cachet around the world, including in the US, is we're a thriving democracy like you. We're just fighting terrorism like you. Let us show you how to do it. And many, many nations, even those, by the way, who openly criticize what Israel is doing, including in Gaza since October 7, are some of the biggest purchasers and users of Israeli repressive technology. So as I often say to people, don't look at what countries say, look at what they do. Now, obviously, rhetoric matters. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. And obviously, since October 7, large parts of the global south particularly have been outraged and appalled by what Israel's doing. However, however, Many of those same nations, long before October 7, I guarantee it'll happen in the coming months and years, will still be buying repressive Israeli technology. The entire Arab world, for example, who have spent, in, and I talk about the Arab world, I'm talking about the leadership here, not the people. The Arab peoples in general and the Muslim populations of the world are in general overwhelmingly in support of Palestine. That's been very clear for decades and especially since October 7. Their leaders, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, etc., yes, give lip service to we're deeply concerned about what Israel is doing in Gaza. It's all, in my view, nonsense. None of them have cut ties with Israel. None of them will. All of them are desperate and will continue to buy Israeli repressive technology because they're petrified of the Arab Spring happening again. They're petrified of their own people, essentially. And in their view, Israel has successfully tested so many forms of surveillance on Palestinians that they believe they can use them themselves on Jordanians, Egyptians, Saudis, Emiratis, whoever it may be. So that's what matters in the end. And finally, the latest figures we have from the Israeli arms industry is 2022. They'll release the figures from 2023 sometime this year. In 2022, $12.5 billion US dollars was the highest amount Israel had ever gained from its arms industry. 24% of that were to Arab autocracies, 24%. And that has partly based on, you may remember the end of the Trump administration, there was the so-called Abraham Accords, which was an attempt to, so the argument went, normalized relations between Arab countries and Israel, which essentially was an arms deal. That's all it was, that it was allowing all these nations to get exclusive access to Israeli repressive tech, which they took up. And when, even in the last few months, when you read about Saudi Arabia still talking about they're open to normalizing relations with Israel if there's ever a Palestinian state, well, that's never going to happen in my view, which we can discuss if you want. 
But the key point is here, Saudi has bought huge amounts, long before October 7, huge amounts of repressive technology from Israel, spyware, to spy on their own people, and for that matter, others. So I guess the idea of the book was to try to provide a, a framework to understand how a nation like Israel, which has occupied a people for so long, and many on the left would argue its image has never been worse, this is even before October 7, but since. This, in some ways, the arms industry is an insurance policy. That's how I view it for Israel, meaning that many, many, many nations that are so desperate for all this technology and this spyware and repressive tech, in my view, are far less likely to go against Israel where it matters because they're so reliant on it. Now, other nations do this stuff as well. Russia makes spyware, China does. It's not unique on one level to Israel that they make spyware, for example. The US does, of course. But there's something that comes with the cachet in Israel, a so-called self-described democracy, a so-called aircraft carrier, American aircraft carrier in the Middle East, as a former US president said decades ago. And many nations think that the road to Washington goes via Tel Aviv, meaning that access to the US economically, financially, politically is assisted or boosted by being close to Israel. And that often bears out historically. Anthony, uh, you mentioned some of the names. Um, some of the countries that have are purchasing these surveillance systems and weapons. And do you have examples of these things being used on populations? Just so I understand, you mean populations in other countries? Whatever countries that have purchased or you know, mm. are done deals with Israel, are they, is this actively being used on their populations? So there's lots of examples. There's some good ones that come to mind. Spyware, a lot of people will have heard of Pegasus, which is the infamous spyware, which a government or intelligence service essentially installs on your phone, whether it's an Android or, or iPhone. You have no idea it's on there unless it's forensically checked and essentially all the contents of that phone can be checked. And, of course, one of the things I discuss in the book is that there's been so much media obsession with Pegasus, and by all means it's an important issue, and there's been some good reporting in the last years in The Guardian, Washington Post particularly, but often it's missed the bigger picture. It's too often framed as this rogue Israeli company selling all this technology to all these nations, and you ask which ones. I mean, where to begin? Morocco. India, uh, much of Europe, Spain, Greece, the list goes on. Now, these tools are not directly killing people. Now, they're not a, a bullet or, or a missile. But a lot of people I speak to in the book, from Mexico to Saudi to others, feel, particularly those who work in human rights in states which don't uh, respect them, are deeply concerned that by their contents of their phone, if better or worse, our phones have become our lives these days, or for many people, information, personal details, contacts, photos, sometimes intimate information about partners, lovers, whatever it may be. And for that information to be breached in a repressive state can be really not just harmful but scary. So the problem with so much of the media coverage, as I said, has been it's framing it as a rogue company. NSO Group is the name of the company. But in reality... Companies like NSO Group are an arm of the Israeli state. Yes, they're a private company in name. They have a board and they have a degree of accountability, at least in theory, to their supporters. But in fact, they're an arm of the state. And what I mean by that is that, as I de detail in the book, 
In the last 10, 15 years, Netanyahu was prime minister in the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, would go to country after country after country and almost offer Pegasus as a carrot and say, we'd love to sell you this amazing technology. We're not going to ask too many questions about how you use it. In return, we would like some lovely diplomatic support of the UN or some other form of support. And I document in the book from Rwanda to Hungary, from India to other nations, you see Netanyahu meets the leader of those countries. Within six or 12 months, Pegasus is in use. Now, it's pretty clear what's happening there. But it's also worth saying that Pegasus is the tip of the iceberg. If NSO Group, the company that's behind it, went bust tomorrow and they're in a lot of economic troubles at the moment for various reasons, it'll make no difference. Zero difference to this industry because there are huge amounts of other Israeli companies that are doing exactly the same thing. And in the last few years since President Biden came to office, he made a big show of sanctioning NSO Group uh, under the guise of saying we're very concerned that NSO Group is essentially breaching human rights around the world and we're taking a stand against this company and a few others and therefore we really are committed to human rights. Well, it would be nice if we believe that, that little fairy tale. Uh, but like with most things with the US administration, whether it's Democrat or Republican, but obviously now we're currently in the glorious heyday of dear Joe Biden, this had nothing to do with human rights. It was basically about a concern. Of course, this was never stated publicly, to be clear. They were concerned, they being the US, that the American surveillance spyware industry has been superseded by the Israelis. This was basically a, a, a competition question that they were upset that Israel was now either first or second in the world in selling and promoting spyware. And where is the US? They were not in the top three. Now, since this decision a few years ago, it hasn't really helped the, the American intelligence or surveillance companies. I mean, to be clear, I just want to be clear on this, the US has unbelievably powerful surveillance tools. I mean, the NSA is inarguably the most powerful surveillance apparatus in the world. But Israel's is not far behind. And as I note in the book, it's kind of fascinating. The US-Israel relationship is often seen as very close. And as we've seen since October 7, it is very close. But it's also one based on profound mistrust that both countries massively spy on the other. As I detail in the book, the US has hundreds and hundreds of officers whose job every day is to spy on Israel. That's their job. And to be clear, we don't know the numbers in Israel spying on America, but I can assure you it's happening as well. It's happening on both sides. So I guess I say all this just finally to explain that the amount of people who are suffering from Israeli repressive tech, the country that really stands out the most, you ask that question, and there's so many, but one that really is particularly relevant, I guess, to the US audience is Mexico. Mexico is your, well, so is Canada, but a close neighbor. I mean, you'll, you'll share a border with Mexico. Mexico is the biggest obsessive user of Israeli spyware. They are obsessed with it, biggest in the world, either under former right-wing governments or even normally under the current left-wing government in Mexico. They're going after dissidents, human rights workers, journalists, etc. And it's interesting because the amount of people I spoke to in Mexico, some of them feature in the book, a widow of a murdered journalist who discovered after his death, almost certainly by a gang or by the government, as you know, in Mexico, it's often incredibly hard to actually know the difference. And often they're very similar, whether it's a gang or the government, they are sadly very intertwined realized that both her husband and her were being monitored by 
surveillance technology. She didn't know why. She could only guess probably to sort of see who he was communicating with and who she was communicating with. Now, for her, that was so devastating. Again, that wasn't a weapon that killed her. The weapon didn't directly kill her husband. But it was so, she felt unsafe in her own country. Yeah, incredibly powerful section of the book, Anthony. And it hits home just as journalists. You know, we're all journalists here. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what was really fascinating to me among many things in the book, these revelations, the EU's use of Israeli drones in the Mediterranean. If you could talk a little bit about that. In 2015, some listeners will remember, there was a large number of migrants that arrived in Europe, mostly from the Middle East and Africa, fleeing the war in Syria and elsewhere. It was roughly a million, give or take. Germany took in quite a few, other nations did too, but pretty quickly the political mood soured. What I mean by that is that in many European nations, not all, there is a real, I would say, hatred and contempt for migrants who are not white. And it's important to note when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Europe welcomed Ukrainians with, welcome, with open arms, which I support, by the way. I mean, I think that's a good thing. I'm not opposed to Ukrainians fleeing war to be welcomed, but it's pretty stark how different it is if you're brown or black or Muslim. The EU decided to start creating a so-called fortress Europe, and the aim of that was to keep as many brown or black bodies out of their borders, away from their territory. And the way they did that was through a multitude of things, for example, increasingly not rescuing people in the Mediterranean, hugely cutting any kind of rescue boats that they themselves send out and trying to prosecute private companies that were trying to rescue people who were coming often from Libya fleeing often conflicts that we in the West had helped cause and fuel and arm, whether it's Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, parts of Africa. And the Israeli part of this, which is something that a lot of people have found very shocking, is that in the last sort of 15 or so years, Israel's used and, used and tested huge amounts of drones over Gaza. And these drones often are tested over Gaza to be used in countless wars that Israel has prosecuted against Gaza, including in the current one since October 7 last year. And Europe was really attracted to those drones. And in the last roughly five or so years, the EU is using, they're unarmed, but they're using Israeli drones 24-7 over the Mediterranean monitoring refugees in the water who are coming off and on leaky, flimsy boats. And then that information, that vision is then relayed back to Frontex. Frontex is the EU's sort of so-called border security arm. Their headquarters is in Warsaw, Poland. And a decision is made, do we rescue these people or do we not? In the vast majority of cases, they do not. So there is an, there is an unofficial official policy, if you can call it that, of not rescuing people. Thousands of people have died in the Mediterranean in the last years. That's not a contestable point that's a fact so israel plays a key part in that they're not directly killing the people themselves but the eu was desperate for a so-called reliable surveillance partner israeli drones were seen as the most reliable they can stay in the air for dozens and dozens of hours monitoring the mediterranean and the only reason the eu would want to buy and use those drones is because they were effective in their view over gaza for years this is again an example of the real challenge that Palestinians face in liberation. And let me explain briefly what I mean by that connection. That 
the US is clearly 110% in Israel's corner. The Arab countries are now similarly. This is, this is long before October 7, but I would argue since. There was some hope maybe years ago that Europe, enlightened, humane Europe, would somehow maybe be a little bit more understanding towards the Palestinians' plight. This has utterly failed to come to pass. Again, I'm not talking about European people. I'm talking about European governments, of course, EU leadership. When, yes, there are some exceptions, yes, there are certain politicians in Spain and elsewhere who are critical of Israel. I'm not saying no one exists. But in general, the EU is Israel's biggest trading partner has been for years and vast parts of Europe and again this was very clear before October 7 but it's made been made unbelievably clear since 110% behind Israel's colonization program ignore all the rhetoric about we're concerned about settlements it's lip service there's been no serious attempt to challenge that Israel gets prioritized trading access to European markets the EU is still buying huge amounts of Israeli weapons and spyware. Huge amounts of European nations are using Israeli spyware on their own citizens from Spain to Greece and others. A few months before October 7, Israel struck its biggest arms deals ever with Germany, $3.5 billion US. And after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many European nations rushed to Israel desperate for Israeli weapons, missile defense shields in the fear, justified or otherwise, that Russia might come after them next. And since October 7, Germany, which has been a, and I say this as a German citizen, I'm an Australian citizen, but I'm also a German citizen, I have a German passport, that Germany's stance towards Israel for years has been one based on a profound misunderstanding of their own history, which we don't have to get into if you don't want. But I mention that because since October 7, Germany has massively increased its arms sales to Israel, hugely assisting in Israel's bombardment, war crimes, genocide of Gaza. And within Germany itself, some listeners might be aware, there is a really ugly attempt by all levels of the German state to silence or curtail Palestinian voices, either spoken by Palestinians themselves or supporters of Palestine, whether they're Jewish or otherwise, where various German states are now requiring new migrants to sign documents to say almost like a pledge of allegiance to Israel. This is Germany. This is not Israel. This is Germany. And in the, in the deluded German elite mindset, this is the way that you atone for the Holocaust. This is the way that you atone for the Holocaust by showing uncritical unwavering support for Israel, regardless of what Israel does to Palestinians. Palestinians are regarded as second-class citizens within Germany. And my book goes into some detail about this. The focus, of course, is not that, but it's something I'm very interested in. There's been various articles written about this that listeners can Google if they're interested after this uh, episode, because I think it's very interesting to show how a nation which has perpetrated if not the greatest, one of the greatest genocides in history, killed 6 million Jews and countless others, including my family, the way that many in the German elite view how they have to manage or atone for that legacy is to show uncritical support for Israel regardless of what it does. This is long before October 7, but it's hugely accelerated since. 
And that to me is a really dangerous trend that I see in more and more nations across Europe and the world, even those that did not perpetuate genocide against Jews, but they believe that there is a moral obligation to support Israel uncritically in its so-called war against barbarism. This is how it's framed, I would argue incorrectly, but that's how it's often framed. That's amazing. And it helps um, contextualize why I think Germany, um, along with the United States, called the the South Africa ICJ case, quote, meritless. I think they use the same wording as the United States. And I think that provides some much needed context that you don't often hear from any media, especially in the US. Anthony, you mentioned this already, but um, how September 11th was good for business. I think it's a, it's a chapter in your book. How does that concept intersect with your work on disaster capitalism? Is it all sort of just connected? Sadly, yes. You know, I wish it's funny. The book, this Palestine Laboratory came out, and I actually don't think I used the term disaster capitalism in the book. I wish I had now because it's pretty, although it made itself evident. Yes, I think Israel long before October 7, but certainly since, and I'll explain in a minute how, is very keen to market its most sophisticated weapons to a global audience. So as an example, there was an article in Jerusalem Post about a month ago essentially detailing, it was almost like a press release written by the Israeli military, which is pretty much what the Jerusalem Post is as a newspaper. This is propaganda from the Israeli state. Detailing all the new weapons that Israel is testing and trialling in Gaza. This is not my words, this is their words. We are testing them, seeing how effective they are. Now, that sort of article, and there are many, many, many others, are not just for a domestic Israeli audience. They are for them too, or even for a global audience because the Jerusalem Post is in English. It's actually for global governments who are looking to those articles and those weapons and saying, huh, I could maybe use some of that in my own conflict. This is how it works. This is how it works, that... Various other nations are looking to Israel not just as a model, but as a way to benefit their own military or booster their own armaments or whatever the technology may be. Although it's obviously impossible to know exactly how the conflict between Israel and Hamas will play out, it's pretty clear, I would say, that Israel's arms industry will not be impacted negatively at all. Despite, let's be clear, on October 7, there was an absolutely historical, catastrophic military intelligence governmental failure on Israel's part. I mean, you can't, there's no other way to view that. Roughly 1,200 Israelis killed, murdered by Hamas, some soldiers, many civilians, 240 captives taken into Gaza, many of whom, at least now, roughly 130 are still held hostage. I mean, it was an absolute catastrophe. From the Israeli perspective, there's no other way to view that. Even putting aside the loss of life, almost the delusion that Israelis had for years that they can occupy a population forever. I'm talking about Gaza, but it's equally relevant to the West Bank or East Jerusalem, and expect there to be no pushback, no response, no resistance. That doesn't justify everything Hamas did by any means, but the context is pretty important here. And despite the profound Israeli intelligence collapse, military collapse, whereas the people will remember for hours and hours and hours, the southern part of Israel had the soldiers just disappear. I mean, it was just a complete disaster from Israeli perspective. But none of that, in my view, will have any negative impact on the Israeli arms industry. Now, I can't prove that yet because we have to see how it comes out in the coming years. But History would suggest it won't, and, the, and 9-11 is a good e- example of why it won't in the US. Again, 
a catastrophic intelligence failure of monumental proportions. It had no impact. In fact, it had the opposite effect that both the Bush administration and then various American defense companies saw massive dollar signs and made unprecedented profits. What you are seeing already in Israel and in Gaza since October 7 are huge amounts of Israeli companies testing weapons, everything from surveillance tech, suicide drones, a range of other tools and technologies. Many of them are shown on social media as a promotion. Like this is how it works. It's not just shown, as I said, to try to convince an Israeli public that we are winning in Gaza. And we can argue whether that's true or not. I would say it's not. But that's what they're trying to convince the Israeli public about. But they're showing it to a global market. I would say in the coming months and years, a number of foreign governments will purchase some of those weapons, A. And B, many of them will do it not just because they want to get those weapons or that surveillance tech. They want to show solidarity with Israel. I'm talking mostly about the West here, but I'm also talking about, as I said to you before, do not believe so many of the comments of the Global South. I'm not dismissing the Global South as an idea. What I'm saying is that historically, so many of those nations talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk because they are buying, and I say they, huge amounts of nations in Africa, huge amounts of countries in Latin and South America, some of whom have been very critical of Israel since October 7. And I welcome that by all means. But I'm pretty confident, historic, historically speaking, that they will still end up buying, not all of them, but many of them, repressive technology, some of which has been tested in Gaza since October 7. And therefore, the Israeli arms industry and surveillance industry is self-perpetuating. I'm not saying nothing can ever arrest its development. I'm not saying that. It could, potentially. But as I said, after... Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Israeli arms industry had never been more profitable. So much of the profits from 2023 would have happened before October 7. So I'm moderately confident that when the 2023 figures come out this year, they'll be very healthy because A, so many European nations wanted to buy those technologies. And frankly, I don't really see many nations stopping buying, for example, Israeli spyware because of October 7. Why would they? They would say they're effective, in inverted commas. They can get the information they want from dissidents or human rights workers. Why would they stop buying that technology? Why would European nations, for example, stop buying missile defense shields from Israel that they wanted to use to protect themselves in their view from potential Russian invasion or incursion? I don't think they will. They'll keep on buying that. Yes, because they want the technology and the weapons, but also to show solidarity with Israel, as much of Europe has since October 7. And part of those sales, uh, Anthony, which you detail so incredibly in the book, too, is part of this massive PR machine that Israel does. And look, the death toll at this point of civilians, it's, it's over 26,000, you know, over 60,000 injured. You know, we're seeing some of these images, these limited images that we are seeing. You know, we're seeing babies in the rubble. You know, we're seeing women crying and screaming, you know, over their slain families. And so for me, one of the most, I don't know if sick is the right word, parts of the book was when you go into this deliberate sexualization campaign of weaponry and the occupation uh, that the government is doing. And you talk about 
I think they're called the alpha, alpha gun girls or something. And they're smeared in blood. These models smeared in blood, holding these weapons that are battle tested and just slaughtered, you know, ex families. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I mean, right now, I think that it's incredibly pertinent in that we're seeing this outrage on some levels about these, uh, not in other areas, obviously, but about these sort of insta-war snuff films, you know, that these soldiers are, are taking. So if you could talk just a little bit about, about that was just really like, I, I couldn't believe it, you know, when I, when I read that part of the book. You know, for years, I would say for decades, Israel would claim that they successfully convinced huge amounts of peoples around the world that they were fighting a noble war. I'm talking about long before October 7, of course. They were a plucky country that were born in the ashes of the Holocaust. All the Arab nations hated them. They were striving in a dangerous territory. This is the rhetoric that Israel was selling. It's selling to the world. And that many in the global Jewish diaspora, of which I'm a part, bought, believed, sold, promoted. The problem that Israel has now, despite, yes, the attempt of all these so-called sexy girls in bikinis trying to model hot weapons that try to suggest that they're kind of a cool... I mean, there was an article just recently as one example in the New York Times talking about... I mean, it was essentially as so much the New York Times is these days, propaganda for Israel, that there's female Israeli soldiers on the front line fighting in Gaza. Okay, I mean, that's probably true, but that's, you know, the that sort of this sort of idea of if that's feminism, that's like saying, well, the CEO of Lockheed Martin's a woman. Okay, what's your point? I mean, great. That wouldn't have maybe happened 50 years ago because it was a, it's a patriarchal society, but how does that change what they're doing? I mean, the idea that, that to me seems like identity politics taken to such a ridiculous, absurd degree where simply having a woman in a position, head of Lockheed Martin, fighting on the front lines of Gaza. And what's your point? I mean, as you rightly say, there's huge amounts of videos mostly uploaded on TikTok by Israeli soldiers, men and women since October 7, humiliating Palestinians, not just men doing it, women doing it. In other words, there's no difference. And it's also worth saying, by the way, this is a brief aside, that there is massive problems for years of mass rape in the Israeli military of male soldiers of women. Now, obviously, that happens in the US military too. It's not unique to Israel. But the idea somehow that one is promoting yourself as this kind of feminist-friendly army when there's it's like this dark, dark reality, as there is in many militaries, of many Israeli female soldiers being sexually assaulted by their male compatriots. You know, I wanted to put that in the book, that section, because, and I think I explained that in other parts, that I think all that propaganda is much less successful than it used to be. And what I mean by that is that Israel is called Hasbara, in other words, trying to explain so to speak, what they're doing. And as I said before, I think for decades that was relatively successful. Now, when I use the term successful, I'm not saying that much of the Arab world believed it. I'm not saying Muslim Americans supported Israel. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that in many nations and at many elite levels, Israel in the past and to a certain extent still now in the West today were given a pass. They were believed. Their narrative was bought. They were fighting a war on terror long before 9-11, as I talk about in the book. I mean, the U.S. copied the war on terror from Israel. <laughs> they used the playbook. Uh, when Bush declared a war on terror after 9-11, it wasn't original. 
the Israel had been doing it for decades before, and much of a language in the and the aims, which failed miserably in my view, nonetheless, is something that Israel had been doing a long time ago. The reason I say it's not as successful anymore is that there is now never been such a profound disconnect between elite leaders on Israel-Palestine and publics. There was a poll that came out January 2024 in the US which found that one-third of American voters said Israel was committing genocide. One-half of Democratic voters said Israel was committing genocide. Now, that would suggest to me, this is in the context of the ICJ case, the genocide case in The Hague in Europe, This would suggest Israel has a bit of a problem. Now, do they have a problem convincing Biden or Rishi Sunak in London? Apparently not. They're on board. But what Israel does have a problem with, a profound problem with, and Israeli leaders and influencers are well aware of this problem, they have a profound PR problem. And no matter how you try to sell occupation or put sexy girls in bikinis or try to take influencers on lobby trips to Israel, whatever you're going to do, it ain't working. It works at the elite level to an extent, but it's not working so much in the public. And of course, there are people in America who support Israel. I'm not denying that. I mean, if Trump, for example, wins this year, which I think is a viable possibility in the US, sorry about that for Americans and sorry for the world, really. We're all going to suffer because of it. I think it is possible that America could even become more pro-Israel. It's always possible to be more extreme on Israel than even Biden. Hard to imagine, but possible. The reason I say that is there are many Republican voters who are 110% behind Israel. So I'm not suggesting all Americans suddenly are turning against Israel. That would not be true. But there is a profound, also generational shift going on, and many public opinion polls have reflected that, including in the Jewish community, where it's not quite as neat as this, but in general, and this was borne out, by the way, in that recent poll I mentioned in terms of genocide, in general, older Americans are much more supportive of Israel. In general, younger Americans are far less so, including in the Jewish community. Obviously, the Arab and Muslim community is a given. They're very, very, very much against what Israel's doing. And as I'm sure many listeners will be aware, this is something that potentially could cost Biden the election, that there are many, many communities in America Arab, Muslim, and others who will not forget what Biden has done or not done with Israel, who may not vote for Biden. Doesn't mean they're going to vote for Trump, but they might sit out or vote for a third candidate. I guess we'll have to wait and see. My point in saying all this, just to close, is that Israel's decades and decades attempt at selling its image as a robust, vibrant democracy is no longer working. It convinces some, but it does not convince as many anymore. And the clever Israelis, recognize that but rather than trying to change their policies what they do is is just trying to engage in slicker propaganda as if somehow that's going to work as if somehow i mean i just give an example of noah tishby just finally i know if you guys know noah tishby is a kind of weird american israeli quasi failed actress who is now a very influential pro-israel propagandist she's on instagram particularly She's got, I think, a million followers. She was profiled in the New York Times. She's been around long before October 7. And all she does is post, she just posted something today, kind of dressing up in Israeli fighter jet outfits and kind of chatting and flirting with pilots about what they're doing in Gaza. Now, does that convince some people? 
probably people who are on board who think Israel is doing a noble job, it probably does. But does anyone seriously think that people are going to watch videos by Noah Tishby and then in their next video on Instagram see exactly what is going on, the utter devastation that Israel is making Gaza unlivable? That, like that, the solution to what Israel is doing is not slicker propaganda, guys. And yet, many in Israel and its key propagandists do not seem to wreck. They sort of think you sort of up the propaganda to the next level. And I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. And my hypothesis since October 7th has been that the propaganda has worked so well over the several decades they don't realize now that it's not to that extent, even though it is, it's still, they still have popular support, even in the US and other places, countries are standing up for them, even though the CJ is saying it's plausible that they're committing genocide. It's a question I have, um, I know we, you've been generous with your time. What is the connection, uh, this sort of laboratory um, in Gaza to the policy of quote, mowing the grass? And also anything related to the Great March of Return, the the protest movement several years ago. Until October 7, well, I guess still in ways since October 7, Hamas has controlled Gaza. I mean, now its control obviously is far less absolute because of what Israel is doing there, of course. But they still have control of remarkable amounts of Gaza despite what Israel is doing and despite there being five months of insane Israeli bombardment. Every few years, since around 2006 or 7, Israel has gone into Gaza and there's been a war. When I say a war, a conflict, it's hard to know what word to use here, but a, a, a fight between Hamas and Israel. And the term that many in Israel use is mowing the lawn, meaning that every few years we in Israel have to go into Gaza and just kind of just show them who's boss, knock out some Hamas fighters, missile launches, destroy lots of Gaza, so they will teach them a lesson. Them being, I mean, what they're saying is they say it's about Hamas, but actually it's about the Gazan people, really. And this has been the really policy for close to 20 years of a belief that Gaza has now been not just deserving of attack, but and this is this is the Israeli mindset. And again, it's just be clear, this is, you know, one of the problems with so much of the coverage, and particularly in the American press of Israel, is that this is obsessive focus on Netanyahu. And Netanyahu is the prime minister. Obviously, he's a very important figure and he's a, a very dangerous man and has been for years. There's no, no way an apology of Netanyahu. But the problem with Israel is not Netanyahu. Well, the only problem, Netanyahu could fall as prime minister tomorrow and he's probably going to fall at some point. He's under lots of pressure and no one likes him anymore and he will leave at some point this year, next year, who knows when. Any of the likely successes are no different. Yelapid, Benny Gantz, these are so-called how the American press frames them as like they're more liberal, open-minded Israelis. Well, on any of these key issues, Gaza, the West Bank, the occupation, newsflash, there ain't no difference. Now, yes, it's true. Netanyahu has undeniably a far-right coalition that would not probably be in a government of those other men. That is true. And that far-right coalition is the most extreme in the country's history, and it's very dangerous. I'm not minimising that for a second. Ben Gavir, Smotrich, these people are genocidal in their intent. But the Israeli policy towards Gaza and the West Bank and the occupation is the belief 
and frankly, much of the world has allowed this for decades, is we can keep doing what we're doing. No one's stopping us. No one's bringing us any accountability. No one is really charging us in international courts. Yes, the ICJ case is a rare exception to that, and we'll see how that plays out. But as listeners will be aware, any final determination on that case is years away. A genocide. There may be further investigation. Sounds like there will be, but that's that doesn't help Palestinians today. I'm not minimizing the importance of that case, but that doesn't stop the war today or tomorrow. There is still, I think, and you've seen this in so many examples of, as we touched on before, Israeli soldiers in Gaza filming themselves proudly destroying Palestinian homes, defiling. Palestinians, particularly men who are stripped naked, blindfolded in, and let's not forget, there is obviously winter in the Middle East. It's very cold there at the moment. It seems to me that what what has become so clear since October 7, as horrific as that Hamas attack was, is that the strain of Jewish extremism, which has always been a part of Israeli society, has now come to the fore. You know, we spend a lot of time in the West talking about radicalization of Muslims since 9-11. And yes, there are Muslims, some of whom are radical, no doubt. Some are extreme, some are crazy, all very true. We don't seem to talk much about extremism or radicalization of Israeli society. When do we talk about that? This is not simply a handful of crazy bad apples. It's not just Netanyahu. It's not just Ben Gavir. I have a, I have a, a poll in the book from 2016 that found that close to half of Israeli Jews believe that Palestinians should be ethnically cleansed. Half. That was 2016. There have been polls since October 7 that find a vast majority of Israeli Jews, not a handful, a majority support the idea of Palestinians no longer being in Gaza. I'm not saying they should kill them all. They should be removed. Now, don't ask me how, where. That's a mainstream view. And I think there has been a, because for decades and decades, as I often call the American press, and there are exceptions, obviously I'm generalizing, there has been a protection racket run for Israel, New York Times, New Yorker, other elite publications. Again, there are some good journalists at all those outlets. I'm not saying there's been no good journalism, there has. But in general, a protection racket for Israel. So this extremism I'm talking about within Israel would come as a shock to many Americans because they would say, hang on a second, sure Netanyahu is terrible and his coalition is full of far-right fascists, but what, all these rallies are crazy? And I'm saying, no, no, not all crazy, but when you have 70, 80%, 70, 80% in recent polling within Israel saying that they support so-called voluntary migration from Israel, well, that's ethnic cleansing, and they use this term voluntary migration. Firstly, Palestinians have nowhere to go. They're obviously Israel's hoping, and this is what I've been investigating in the last few months, the attempt to try to cajole, bribe, give weapons to other nations to take in Palestinians from Gaza. Now, thus far, as far as I'm aware, that has not been successful in, a, in any big numbers. But the extremism within the Israeli public, frankly, is a danger to all of us. Because what Israel is doing in Gaza is supported by the vast, vast majority. There are opponents in Israel, Jewish, and obviously Palestinians is a given. I'm talking about Israeli Jews. 
who are critical on the streets protesting. I'm friends with some of them and I admire them very much, but they're a tiny minority. I think when we talk a lot about how Israeli society has been radicalized to the extent that it has over decades, an occupation always corrupts a society. It always does. You cannot occupy a population down the road from your house. If you go to, if you live in Tel Aviv, it's half an hour, 45 minutes from your house where there's an occupation. Now, if you're an Israeli and you choose to cover your eyes or cover your ears or say it's not my problem or spend your days partying or going to the beach in Tel Aviv, that's your right to do so, I guess. But you're living in a world of delusion because Palestinians under occupation down the road will eventually and inevitably and necessarily resist that. And as I often say, I'll finish on this, Israelis will never be safe until Palestinians are. And, Isra- and it's the great irony as someone who's Jewish, although I'm secular, Zionism was always sold as an ideology that we as Jews can never be safe in Europe due to centuries of anti-Semitism, and there's some degree of truth in that, of course. And we have to create our own state, just happen to be on the graves of Palestinian bodies, to be safe. Now, 75 years plus after the establishment of Israel, nobody can credibly argue that Zionism has made Jews more safe, either in Israel or anywhere else in the world. In fact, I would argue it's made Jews far more unsafe. Now, I'm not minimizing anti-Semitism. It's real. In fact, since October 7, in some parts of the world, actual Jew hatred attacks against Jews is growing. I'm not minimizing that for a second. In the US and Australia, Europe, to be sure. But Israeli actions and presence are making that worse, not better. Well, Anthony, I think we're going to end it there. Well said, you know, we, and we can't uh, thank you enough for your time. And again, the critical, critical, critical insights in your book and all the work you're doing. Thank you.